You ever stop and think about the fact that Jesus sang? He sang songs with his friends. And he had a voice. Sometimes I wonder if it was a good voice or a bad voice. I wonder if he enjoyed singing or if he just did it because that's what you did in his day. We know he sang because the Bible tells us he sang the night that he was betrayed. One of the last things he did with his disciples, it says, after they had sung the hymn, they went out to the garden to pray. So thanks for reminding me that Jesus had a human voice, just like y'all's. And every now and then he sang off pitch, because there's no sin in that either. If you've got a Bible, and I hope you do, uh, turn back to Luke where you were, but we're only going to look at the first a few verses of Luke's gospel. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1. Luke is a... Uh, a biography of sorts about Jesus' life. It doesn't fit kind of the, the criterion for what we would now consider kind of a, a modern uh, biography, uh, but it is an account, a, a true account of Jesus' life and deeds and teachings uh, written uh, by uh, a physician named Luke. And he introduces his book using uh, these words. And so I want you to see these words and uh, make sure that I'm not making them up. I'm not telling you all kinds of stuff. Um, Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 1. The Bible says this, it says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. With this in mind, since I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. This too is God's word. Thanks be to God. We're going to pray, but if I don't read the note on my hand, I will forget it. And there's two notes. One is uh, Matt Duncan, who a lot of times is playing music over here uh, for us, and his wife Sarah, who sang in the cantata, and their members here had their baby, Daisy Eugenia, last Sunday morning at like 3.58 in the morning. Um, everybody's doing great there. And then second, uh, you all gave me a pig cooker um, to celebrate three years of ministry here, and to, to celebrate three years of ministry here, I cooked you a pig. On your way out, there's a quart bags of barbecue. Uh, there should be one for every family. If not, then you guys can thumb wrestle over them. Um, <clears throat> they're in the fridge right now, so whoever's doing lemonade, just yank those out of the fridge and put them on the counter next to the lemonade and give everybody a bag of barbecue. Um, if you need sauce, I hear Art Watkins, Ar Arthur Watkins is like stockpiling a bunch of it. Um, let's pray. Jesus, I'm just really grateful, really grateful to be with these people because I find it easier to believe when I'm with them. I find them, in some sense, strengthen failing knees and to, to, to lift up um, tired hands. And so I pray that our worship of you together would make faith conceivable, that Jesus would be born in us today as we sing in the carol. 
that, that, that you would still enter into every human heart. Would you give us minds to understand and eyes to see and ears to hear? Would you speak to us as a whole person with minds and hearts and feelings, with wills? We pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so Christmas is about children. At least that's what they tell me. Uh, that Christmas is, is more fun. I've been hearing this since uh, Jack was, um, was conceived. That, that Christmas is more fun with kids around. And it's more fun when your kids are kids. And that as soon as they start growing up, like Christmas is just downhill. And then there's this another huge hump when you have grandkids. And then it's even more fun because you get to give them all the sugar and all the toys and then send them home with the loud, annoying gifts and all the energy uh, that you just gave them. And Christmas is this magical time for kids, and it feels like the trees smell of elves and the roof sounds of hoofbeats, when every stitch of color is the biggest Christmas tree in the world, and all the presents are for you. It's a time to sit and to watch kids' movies like Claymation Rudolph and Frosty to the modern classics of Home Alone and Elf, Dr. Seuss's Grinch, and Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. These stories ring of miracles and magic, of pointy ears and flying creatures, of time standing still and chimneys opening up for a fat man, and old silk hats that breathe the breath of life, and red noses that guide the way for lost people. And I love these stories. Because if you hang out with me long enough and if you come tomorrow, you know that I believe every good story Every single story that stirs something deep in us and moves us deeply is good because it echoes the one great story in the universe, which is God's creative, redeeming, restoring love for us in Jesus. But friends, it's easy for us to have all the stories flying in our head and to take the Virgin Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus and the shepherds and the wise men and to, to just cram them into another myth or fairy tale or legend, to throw them right next to Frosty and Tiny Tim as inspiring and tear-jerking and heartwarming stories full of magic and wonder, but just made up to impress children and to inspire better lives. But the gospel that word gospel, what the angels announce in Luke chapter 2, what they come to say they've brought, they say, I bring you, in verse uh, 10, says, I bring you good news. I bring you good news, not a, a good story, though it is a story, but this is good news. News means repeating of actual events, things that happen, recording things that really happen, not just inspiring stories to give warm fuzzies, not made-up tales of chicken noodle soup for the teenage soul to teach life lessons and give us more moral fiber to, to somehow give us a, 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 an ethical booster shot or to make us nicer, better people to make us less Scrooge-like and less Grinch-like and to make a heart to grow two sizes. But the Christmas story of the Bible, it does sound a lot like those other stories to us because we've been conditioned by our culture to disbelieve, to doubt, and to reject all counts of the miraculous, the supernatural and the transcendent, to value pure, objective, materialistic reason. And so stories about angels announcing virgin births send off alarms in our heads that we've left the realms of rational beings, or they quietly shift our brains over into story time. But Luke seems to anticipate this, does he not? Luke does not write 
to a gullible, unthinking audience. He doesn't write to stupid people, and he doesn't write to impress them, but to convince them. Look back at Luke chapter 1, those, those four verses that, that seem to have nothing to do with Christmas until you realize where they're situated in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Luke writes that he has carefully investigated everything from the very beginning, including talking to, quote, eyewitnesses and servants of the word firsthand in order that he might write, quote, an orderly account, quote, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. This thing that Luke is writing, this gospel, this good news, this is a rigorously researched and reasoned piece of writing. This is the work of a thoughtful man, most likely a physician, who may not know what germs are, but certainly knows where babies come from. Who may not know what DNA is, but certainly know what a baby is. This is not a dumb or a simple or a backwards person. This is a thoughtful man schooled in the physical sciences. And just as importantly, though, though often lacking in our modern education structure, also seemingly very well read in philosophy and the liberal arts. And he is writing to a thoughtful audience that, does not, that he does not expect to believe him just because he says so. He doesn't write these words expecting gullible, blind faith. He's writing to a person, probably a, a man named Theophilus, who uh, very well may have paid for him to write the book, um, or at least uh, have helped Luke out somehow. But he's writing this thing, and he is laying out his credentials, and he's setting the stage to say, I've researched this, and I've thought long and hard about this, and I've chosen my words carefully, and I believe if you do the same, if you think hard and you reason well, you will come to believe the same things. Luke says that all things or about all the things that he's going come from careful research and fact-checking and thoughtful engagement. And then he jumps right into the Christmas story, talking about angels and two miracle babies. So my question, honestly, as I read the Christmas story again this year, was why? If the first four sentences in your book are, this is carefully investigated, this is rigorously researched, this is a careful an account seeming to argue for, 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 for reason and intellect. Why in the world are you going to start with a story like Elizabeth and Zechariah and then the Virgin Mary? Why not skip that stuff like Mark does and jump into something that smacks of realism and research that like builds up your credentials? Well, the answer is, for Luke, who needs Christmas? The question we've asked again and again, who needs Christmas? Well, for Luke, the people who need Christmas are the skeptical, the thoughtful, the rigorously rational. They desperately need Christmas. And maybe that's you. Maybe you pride yourself on thinking thoughts to their end or on investigating facts. You value long debates and MLA-formated academic papers. You don't understand blind leaps of faith, and you cannot suffer fools. So angels and miracles and family dinners are all a bit difficult for you. They might seem unscientific or worse, anti-intellectual, but Luke writes the Christmas story for people just like you and just like me. He writes of Gabriel and Zechariah, Mary and Elizabeth, the shepherds and the manger for people like you, people who demand a careful, thoughtful, investigated, orderly account. 
And he doesn't just give lip service to this. His story is full of all kinds of historical data that point to the fact that he believes and he is, in fact, talking about a real human being who lived in a real place at a real time in the same history of the world that you're inhabiting right now, who breathed the same air and walked on the same kind of dirt that you and I are living in. He looks, he puts these things in his story like he doesn't start it off by saying once upon a time. Instead, he writes, in the king, in the days of King Herod, an actual person, a historical figure we know about. And then he goes on, he says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken. And this was the first census while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Luke names historically verifiable characters and events over and over to give us a reference point to ground this in the history of the world. Which world? This world. The same world that had Napoleon and Gandhi. And the archaeology and the extra-biblical data, they support the Christmas account as much as we can verify. We can verify that, that people were ordered to go home to censuses. Four censuses. How do you plural census? Different question. While the, the most famous governor named Quirinius was governor after Herod died, there was a very famous governor of Syria named Quirinius, um, and he took office after Herod died. And so it looks like, how could Herod be king and Quirinius be governor? But from the, some money that has been found from the same time period uh, that Herod is king, there was either another Quirinius reigning as governor, or Quirinius was governor twice, and he fell out of favor in the middle. So there was a Quirinius who was governor during the same time. For Luke... Faith is a thinking thing. Faith involves the whole human being and it involves the human heart and the mind and the experience and the reason. And he doesn't just start with this in his introduction. He leads with this in his characters. He shows us this in Mary. So if we look look with, at Mary's story again, we didn't read the whole thing, um, but we're going to see it in chapter 1, verse 26. If we go down there, the angel shows up to Mary to announce that she is going to have a child. And in verse 28, it says, The angel went to Mary and said, Greetings to you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And look at what verse 29 says. Verse 29 tells us that Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Mary is troubled, she's afraid, she's thrown off. This is not what she's used to or what she's expecting. And it says she wondered at what kind of greeting this might be. That word wondered in Greek is the word dioligizomai. It's easier to say than that. It's an accounting term that has been applied to thinking. It means to take an audit, to thoroughly add up, to reckon thoroughly, to take stock of a situation. It's an inherently rational uh, word. The Bible is trying to tell us that Mary is here trying to add up all the things that are going on and figure out what is going on. And she's got to be wondering if she's crazy, if she's hallucinating, if she's dreaming a dream or living a nightmare, if the stress of planning a wedding has finally caused a psychotic break. And I imagine her with all these ideas running through her head and the calculations going on and trying to find explanations. And when explanation is lacking, nothing makes sense of this except that there's really an angel right here talking to her. And that's not comforting to her. Because what do the angels have to tell her again? Don't be afraid. So Mary concludes that she's not cracked. She has not hallucinated. She's just communicating with an angel and it surprises and it scares her. 
And if you've ever had an experience of transcendent, if you have ever met God and had conscious contact with God, if you have ever experienced God's presence in your life, God speaking to you from this pulpit or somewhere else where God showed up and spoke words to you directly, maybe not through an audio voice, but you knew that God was aware of you, you had this similar experience where you, you're adding it up. And how, Does the preacher know me? How does he know what's going on in my life? I don't. I'm just preaching. Um, you, you, you start adding up that. Did somebody tell him what's going on? Uh, did they know I was going to be here? You start trying to figure out, is this a coincidence or is this something bigger than me? And after adding it all up and ruling out coincidence and ruling out pre- pre- previous knowledge, uh, you realize that, no, God is trying to grab a hold of you, that God is speaking to you. Uh, you start to step forward. And so the first step towards faith is always taking an audit. The first step towards taking Towards faith is taking an audit. It's that word dialigozomai. See, it's easier to say the second time. Um, The second step, though, the first step is taking an audit, and the second step is doubt your doubt. You may be here and you're full of doubt. Well, let me encourage you really quick. Look how Mary responds. Look how Mary responds. The angel goes on and says, You are going to conceive, and you're going to give birth to a son, and you're going to call him Jesus. And Mary responds in verse 34. What does Mary say? Mary say, how will this be? Since I'm a virgin, how is this going to happen since I'm a virgin? Mary responds not with blind faith, not with, that sounds great, sign me up. She responds with a question. How is this going to happen? How is this going to, to be there? You see, what's nuts is that Mary asks a question. And in the previous chapter, earlier in the chapter, when God talks to Zechariah and says, your wife Elizabeth is going to have a baby, Zechariah doubts as well. And he's struck mute. He can't speak until the baby's born. And I find it fascinating that when Mary asks a question, she's met with compassion and explanation. And when Zechariah is asked a question, he's met with punishment and patience-building exercises. So is doubt good or bad? Is doubt holy or sinful? And and the answer in the Bible is brilliant and nuanced, and it's just saying yes. That that you and I both know this, that there is doubt that is is open-hearted, is is faith-seeking understanding. There is doubt that is a propellant into the questions of faith that drives you, that ushers you, that forces you into the deep waters of the spiritual. And then there is another kind of doubt that is a deadbolt against asking questions, that is that is the chains and bars, that is defense mechanisms against anything that would assault what I think I know in the place that I already am. There is a, a kind of, of doubt that is a closed-mindedness against anything that would assault my life or my autonomy or, or force me to change. And the crazy thing about Christmas is that you can't be objective about Christmas because if it's true... Everything changes. If it's, if it's true, then, then, then you and I now are subject to the will of a God who would invade the world to save us and who deserves my ultimate allegiance. And so there's only the doubt that's going to say, okay, what was allegiance going to look like? And then there's the doubt that says, I will be my own king. And Zechariah seems to have the kind of doubt I was pushing God away, whereas uh, Mary is, is trying to figure out what's the next step. And so if you're here and you're doubting, what kind of doubt do you have? My dad likes to call good doubt the ants in the pants of faith because it keeps you moving. 
And that makes sense to me. Let me ask you, are you willing to consider that there may be a better explanation for your situation, your experience of life, for the facts of the universe in general, or for your life in particular? Are you willing to concede that we're here reading a story about a young girl from nowhere desert who had an illegitimate child because the story is actually true? Is that a hypothesis that you're willing to float because he really lived and he really died and he really rose from the dead? Are you willing to put that on the table as one of the possibilities? And if the answer is no, if you're not willing to consider that as a possible answer, as a possible explanation for the course of history over the last 2,000 years, then it is not me, a Christian, but you who are being dogmatic and axiomatic. You, as G.K. Testerton once said, have a doctrine against miracles. G.I. Packer, this pastor and theologian, says that most people struggle with Jesus' miracles, whether it's walking on water or feeding the 5,000 or raising the dead. They're struggling because they have not acted.